A man used to visit a tiny general store in the country, and I don't know, maybe I've shared this this story with you before. If I did, then that just mark it up to old men not remembering what stuff they've shared and what they haven't. But uh, the, the proprietor uh, had a clerk in this store, in this old country store, by the name of Jake. And that guy seemed to be the laziest man in the entire world. Well, one day a, uh, a man noticed that Jake was gone, uh, one of the people that came in to buy stuff, and he asked the, the, the store owner, he said, well, where's Jake? Oh, he replied, um, he retired. And the man that came in to buy something said, well, what are you going to do to fill the vacancy? And the store owner said, Jake didn't leave no vacancy. (laughs) (laughs) And that leads me to ask a question of us this morning is what kind of vacancy would there be in this church if you left? What kind of vacancy? It is God's clear intention that every one of his people be used in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given gifts to each one of us in order that we would use those gifts as good stewards. And yet for so many that name the name of Jesus Christ, their faith is kind of like a, like a football game an occasional Sunday spectator sport. We just watch it on Sunday a little bit, and then it's all over. Uh, they, they are not really serving Christ day by day. But if you truly know Jesus Christ, you can't be happy sitting on the bench or in the stands. You want to be in the game. You want to be involved in ministry. You want to be used of God in some way or another. And so our text this morning in in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verse 20 down through verse 22, but our text this morning reveals the kind of person that God uses. And you may be thinking that God uses people who have impressive abilities, who have great gifts, who, who have a lot of education and all of that kind of stuff. And while spiritual gifts play a part, they are not the main feature in being used by God. A man may be a gifted Christian leader and yet bring terrible disgrace to the name of Christ. And, and I know, at least I have known, uh, men who, who served in churches and were amazing preachers who failed miserably in their moral lives. And so you can be a great, gifted Christian leader and yet bring great disgrace on the church of Christ. Or you may think that that God uses a a person who has been to seminary and has a a lot of training. And while seminary has its place, I I know of men who graduated from seminary, but they're, they're not even in the stadium, let alone in the game. Or you may think that God uses a person who has great knowledge of the Bible. A lot of times I hear people say that, well, I can't can't serve in a a certain capacity or whether because I don't don't have a lot of knowledge of the Bible. And while as we, we saw last week, being careful students of the Bible is very important, it is not the the main thing. 
you may be a renowned Bible scholar and yet be detrimental to the cause of Christ. So the simple message of our text today is that God uses cleansed people who are defined by two characteristics. God uses cleansed people who flee from sin and secondly, pursues godliness. Flee from sin and pursue godliness. So Paul is telling Timothy how to deal with some some very difficult problems in the church at Ephesus where Paul had left Timothy to minister. In the verses we looked at last week, he exhorted Timothy to use the scripture properly, not as Hymenaeus or Philetus, whose, whose false teaching had led some astray. He reminds Timothy in verse 19 of verse chapter 2, Timothy, let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. And so now he urges Timothy to be a cleansed man who flees sin and pursues godliness, summed up underneath four qualities righteousness, faith, love, and peace with the Lord's true people. So Paul uses the illustration here for us to really be able to understand, and for Timothy to understand all of this, of a large house that has different kinds of vessels in it. So the gold and silver vessels that we're going to look at this morning are kept clean so that they may be used for honorable purposes, such as dinner parties. And the wood and earthen vessels are used for dishonorable purposes, perhaps in the kitchen um, or to carry out garbage or, 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 you know, whatever needs to be cleaned up. They're used for that. And, And often they get broken and they're cheaply replaced and it's no problem with that. Now, if we're not careful, though, it would be easy to misapply Paul's point here. Because you see, if you, if you took his illustration to its logical conclusion of the, of the, the silver and the gold and the, and the earthenware and all of that, you, if you take that to the illogical conclusion, you could say that the dishonorable vessels serve a legitimate function and thus are just as necessary as the gold vessels. But that's not Paul's point. So we need to be careful here. Rather, the large house represents the professing or what we would call the the visible church, much like our church here today. Some who associate with the truth, the church, are truly born-again believers. Others, such as the false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus that Paul has already talked about, are probably not born again. They are the vessels of dishonor. So Paul is saying that that no one should be a vessel of dishonor. That is his point. And to put it another way, he says that God isn't going to use garbage pale lives to serve the pure gospel to a hungry world. Can, Can you imagine being a guest at a wealthy home where you're seated around this magnificent table and and all of, the, all of the dignitary people are there, and they're all dressed up, everything's amazing, 
And then all of a sudden, the kitchen doors swing open, and the cook comes out with a garbage pail and starts dishing the food out onto your plate. You see, God, God isn't going to use dirty lives to serve the good news of Christ to the world. But rather, God uses cleansed people. So in verse 20 and 21 there of chapter 2 of 2 Timothy, but in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also vessels of wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so we notice here that, that each one of us must choose the type of vessel that we are going to be. And clearly, Paul is, is presenting us with this choice. Do you want to be a gold or, or silver vessel that would be used for honor? Or will you be a cheap clay pot used for dishonor? And again, you may think, well, both are used of God, aren't they? And the answer is, yes, but you don't want to be used as a vessel of dishonor. You see, it's interesting to me that, that Paul uses this illustration in Romans chapter 9 and verses 21 through 23, although he uses it and he puts emphasis in a different place. You see, in, in Romans chapter 9, he says, does not the potter have power over the clay? from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God wanted to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering, the vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, that, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessel of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Now, you see, in that text, Paul is emphasizing God's sovereign right to do as he pleases with his creation. As the potter, he can do whatever he wants with the clay. And, and the clay has no right to challenge the potter and what the potter is doing as he's molding our lives. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 20 and 21, Paul emphasis is on our responsibility to cleanse ourselves from the defilement of sin, especially the sin of false teaching, so that we will be vessels of honor. So the clay had no had no couldn't couldn't offer an argument to the to the potter. Whatever the potter wanted to make that vessel for, that was his right. But now here, Paul is telling us, we as individuals have a responsibility as to what kind of vessel we are going to be. So, so um, the Bible is clear that as the, the sovereign of the universe, God uses even evil people for his righteous purposes. He uses Satan and the demons, even though they are opposed to him. In Moses' day, he raised up Pharaoh and used him to demonstrate God's power. And Paul tells us that in Romans chapter 9 and verse 17. He says, For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all of the earth. 
And yet it says how God hardened Pharaoh's heart at different times. God has, has the right to do that. He uses Judas in his plan of putting Jesus on the cross. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, says, Truly, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. And so there again, the sovereign of the universe chose to use some in a dishonorable way. But in Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord has made everything for his own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Now, if you're thinking about now, then, then we, we, we just must be robots, or, or maybe we're just puppets in God's hand. If you're thinking that, then you're wrong. Because you see, the Bible also clearly declares that each of us is responsible moral agents. Although God ordained that Judas and Herod and Pilate would play a role in crucifying the Savior, each of those men were guilty sinners responsible for their terrible sins. You you will fall into error if you let go of either God's absolute sovereignty or man's full responsibility for his sin. You would fall into error because we as individuals are responsible for the sin in our life. So Paul's point in our text is you have a choice. Every one of us have a choice. You will be a filthy vessel that God uses for dishonor, or you will be a clean vessel that God will use for honor. It's your choice. What do you want to do? You want to be a filthy vessel, or do you want to be a clean vessel? You are accountable before a sovereign God as to the choice that you make in your life. But then also, cleansing is your responsibility. Note in verse 21, the first part there, it says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things. Now, in the context, these things refer to the false teachers that were, uh, the false teachings that were being spread around by, by um, uh, Philetus and uh, Arminius. Um, and, and so they were spreading all these false things around. It's worth noting that false teachers are not just mental mistake, false teachings, not just mental mistakes, but they are sins that need to be cleansed out of our lives. A lot of times people say, well, you know, I just made a mistake. I just, I thought it was this and it wasn't that. And no, no, that needs to be cleansed out of our life. When Paul says that a person needs to be, needs to cleanse himself, he is not teaching that by my, by our own efforts, we can atone for our sins. He's not teaching that at all here. If you could do anything in and of yourself to deal with your sin problem before God, then the death of Jesus Christ was pointless. But you you can and you must avail yourself to the means of cleansing that God has provided in Christ. That is your responsibility. So if you come, say, into a dirty house or or a clean house, you come in uh, dirty, after, after working hard in your yard or working outside or whatever you were doing, and, and you, you sit down and um, 
you begin licking yourself clean like a cat does. Did you do that? No. <laughs> no, you don't do that. What do you do? You use soap and water to cleanse yourself. The soap and water is right there in, in the bathroom at the sink. And if you walked into the bathroom and just kind of stood there and looked at the soap and water, would you get clean? No, you got to do your part, but the, the soap and water is available for you. So the soap and water are the means of cleansing, but you make use of them by applying them to your body. So God has provided the blood of Jesus Christ as the means of cleansing us from all of our sin. And, and so 1 John 1.7 tells us that we, we walk in the light as he is in the light, and we have fellowship with one another. And, and the blood, not book, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And so we are cleansed from sin. But then verse 9 goes on and says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there, there's a sense in which we are completely clean the moment that we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. But we walk in a world that is full of sin. And as a result of walking in a world that's full of sin, even though we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we get defiled. When we confess our sins, we apply the blood of Jesus to our dirty lives. So to be a vessel of honor, you must walk in the light, confessing all known sin to God. Vessels of dishonor walk in the darkness, and they don't cleanse themselves from sin. So you must choose the type of vessel that you are going to be. Cleansing yourself to become a vessel of honor. And that's your responsibility. Again, the cleansing is through the blood of Christ. But then also, cleansed people are sanctified, useful to the master, and prepared for every good work. And so there's, there's a couple things here. First of all, cleansed people are sanctified. Now that word sanctified simply means to be set apart. We are set apart by God to be used in his service. And, and it is used three ways in the, in the Bible. There is a positional sanctification. In other words, through the death of Jesus Christ, believers have been sanctified once and for all. We see that in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians 6, Hebrews chapter 10. We see in many different places that when I accept Christ as my Savior, I am, I am positionally set apart. It's a judicial act that takes place in heaven. And so that, that, that's a permanent thing. But then there's also the progressive sanctification. And that is, as we grow in Christ, we are progressively being conformed to the image of, the, of Christ. That's why God left us here. He left us here to conform us to the image of his son and that we might be used to be able to share Christ with the lost world around us. And we see things in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 7 and, and um, in, in, Thessal in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. All of those things talk about the progressive sanctification. And so we're not perfect when we accept Christ as our Savior. Positionally, we are because we have the robe of Christ, righteousness. 
in heaven. In the blood of Christ, that's what Jesus sees. So positionally, yes, but, but in our reality, in our life right now, none of us are perfect. And we stumble and we fall. We have sin in our life when we confess that sin because we want to continue to be a vessel that is cleansed, cleansed for God's use. But then finally, when we see Jesus, we will be like him, and this is ultimate sanctification. That is when we received our glorified body. That is when, we, when it, the whole package is done. And so the idea of, uh, you know, are you saved? Yes, I've been saved. I'm being saved, and I will be saved. It's a process all the way through. And 1 John 3, 1 to 3 talks about this ultimate sanctification. So in our text today, though, Paul is talking about the process of progressive sanctification. We must be growing in the process of being separated from all doctrinal and moral evil, set apart as clean vessels for the Lord's use. But then also cleansed people are useful to the master. Now, master there is a Greek word from which we get our word despot. And, and so the, it, it emphasizes Christ's absolute lordship over our life. And so Paul's point here is that dirty vessels are not useful to the master except for purposes that you don't want to think about, evil purposes that he would use us for. We don't want to be that kind of vessel. Have you ever been in a restaurant and, and, and you sit down there and you discover a previous customer's dirty egg crusted up on your fork? Disgusting. Or on the edge of the plate. Makes you just want to, yeah, <laughs> leave. <laughs> and you would, I mean, if you could make your stomach settle down, you would rightly demand a clean fork. This fork is filthy. I want a clean fork. I want a new plate. In fact, I want a new table. I want a new restaurant. I'm getting out of here, you know, and we're gone. Dirty ones are not useful. In the same way, if your mind embraces false teaching, and if our life, our lives are tainted by sin, we are not useful for the master. It's disgusting. To see somebody who claims to be a Christian who walks like the world. And the world sees it. And it leaves a bad taste in their mouth. And they say, I don't want any part of that religion. And rightfully so. But then also cleansed people are prepared for every good work. Prepared has the idea of being willing and ready. The cleansed vessel is waiting for the master to pull off pull us off of the shelf, and put us into honorable use. Dirty vessels are not ready to be used. So have you, have you ever been, been angry when suddenly you have the opportunity to bear witness for Christ? You're just not prepared, are you? You're kind of embarrassed, have you ever been grumbling about something that, that, uh, that went on in your life when you encounter a brother or sister who needed a word of encouragement? 
you probably didn't even notice the need, let alone respond properly because you're too busy grumbling about something. But if you're cleansed, the, the Puritans used to call, call it having, having a short, uh, short account with God. In other words, when sin comes in our life, we confess it right away so that we're cleansed, we're available for that moment that God wants to use us. And, and, and so we need to be ready to be used of God. And so Paul's point in verses 20 and 21 is that God uses cleansed people. He goes on to show what it looks like in practice, that cleansed people flee from sin and they pursue godliness. We see there in, in verse 22 that he says, flee also useful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the name, call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So there are two commands. There's a command to flee, and there's a command to pursue. We are to flee from youthful lust and pursue what we, we may sum up as godliness, broken down under the four qualities of righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That is peace with other believers is what he's talking about here. So a cleansed people flee from sin. Flee also youthful lust, Paul tells Timothy. Now, we usually, when we read that, we usually associate the term with sexual temptation. But as one old professor used to say, men, uh, they aren't just youthful, those sexual temptations. You don't outgrow sexual temptations. Where, where do you think we got the term dirty old men? I mean, you've heard that term, right? Sadly, we don't outgrow that. The word translated lust may refer, though, to any desire, although it is usually referred to as sinful desires, and we think of one particular, but it could be any desire. So while sexual temptation may be included in youthful lust, it's probably not the primary focus that Paul is sharing here. Because some say, well, I've got that under control, but what about other areas? You see, rather, Paul, Paul was probably referring to wrong desires that young men are more prone to have than older men are. And, and Calvin understood it as the propensity of younger men to lose their temper and rush forward into a heated argument with more confidence and rashness than men of a riper age would do. And we see that in young men. They think they got the world by the tail, and, and I can whip anything, and I can do anything, and, and, and we run in, and we make a mess of things. In the same vein, Gordon Fee says that Paul is speaking of headstrong passions of youth who sometimes love novelty, foolish discussions, and argument that all too often lead to quarrels. And so that's a good illustration. William Barclay related it to the faults of impatience and, and self-assertion, uh, love for arguing, and love for novelties that stem from youthful idealism. 
And so Paul, Paul was telling Timothy that while it is right to defend the faith against serious error and to stand firm on the central doctrine of the scripture, that there is a right and a wrong way to go about that. And that is the context. Even though our mind goes to other things, that's the context that he's talking about here. Defending the faith. Passing the faith on to others. The gospel. You're in charge of guarding it, Timothy. So he goes on in verses 23 to 26 that we'll look at in a couple weeks here, Lord willing, to, to, to explain this further. But here he is warning against the wrong way, which is to be arrogant about how much you know and impatiently to blast those who are in error and be quarrelsome and self-assertive. Where the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 includes patience and kindness and gentleness along with self-control. So youthful impetuosity is not on that list at all, is it? So Paul says to flee from those youthful temptations. The, the Bible commands us to flee from, from some other sins as well. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, he says, flee immorality. Don't flirt with it. Don't stand there and pray about what you're going to do. Don't get near it. If it comes knocking, run for your life. Get away from it. Flee immorality. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 14, he says, flee idolatry. Now, you may be thinking, well, at least that one isn't a problem for me. I've, I, I, I'm never tempted to set up an idol. Really? You've never set up an idol in your life? You, you've never been tempted to set up anything in the place that rightfully belongs to God alone? You, you, never, you never allow watching television or playing computers or doing other things to usurp the time that you should be spending alone with God or serving God. You've never allowed that to happen in your life. You see, run from anything that pulls you away from full devotion to God. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, which is, is parallel to our text here this morning, tells us in the context to flee from the love of money. Are you tempted to gamble? Run. It is the love of money that feeds gambling. Do you look at the, at the rich and think, well, boy, I sure would like to live like that. Run. Are you tempted to steal or cheat on your taxes or to be greedy rather than generous? Run, Paul tells us. Cleanse people, flee from sin. But then also cleanse people, pursue godliness, righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Fleeing and pursuing are opposites. It is not enough just to flee from sin, but also you must pursue godly character qualities in your life. So the word pursue is the same word that is elsewhere translated persecute. It, it means to go after it with a vengeance. Run hard after these four aspects of godliness. Cleanse people, pursue righteousness. 
This, this is a general term that refers to right behavior or conformity to the standards of God's word. God's word is not vague about how you should live your life. It doesn't, it doesn't offer helpful hints for, for happy living. If you feel like giving it a try, you know, I'll just, I'll try to do this. And if it works for me, great. If it doesn't, that's okay too. It gives us the commandments of God, which are for our good, Deuteronomy 10 and 1 John 5. On, the, on a side note here, let me just say that obedience to God's word is not legalism. A lot of people say, if, you, if, if a preacher really comes down hard on being obedient to the word of God, well, you're, they're just legalistic. That is not legalism. Paul commands us, pursue righteousness. Go after it with everything that you got. David exclaimed in Psalm 40 and verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Hebrews 10, 7 puts those words in Jesus' mouth. So if 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 you're growing to be like Jesus, you're growing in the delight of pursuing righteousness from your heart. Clint, people pursue faith. The Greek word here may mean faithfulness also. We should be be pursuing faithfulness, which is all too rare. It means that that you are trustworthy. It means that you're reliable and you're pursuing that in your life. When people give you a job to do, they can count on you to do the job because you're faithful. You pursue that. You try to be as faithful as you can. But the word also does mean faith. And we're to pursue faith. Faith is related to our concept of God. Is he mighty? Does he hear the prayers of his people and act on their behalf? Do you you trust him to do far more than, than you're able to do in your own strength? Many years ago, there was a, a learned Hebrew professor at Princeton Seminary named Robert Dick Wilson. And he could, he could read more than 30 Semitic languages. One time about, about 12 years after Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse had graduated from Princeton, he, he went back to the, the seminary and he preached to the student body there at his alma mater. Well, Dr. Wilson sat down near the front, and after the message, he went forward and he shook Dr. Barnhart's hand, and he said, when my boys come back, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be. And Dr. Barnhouse asked him, he said, could you explain what you're, what you're saying here? And, and uh, Dr. Wilson said, well, some men have a little god. And they are always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't take care of the inspiration and the transmission of the scripture to us. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. And they call them, and I call them little godders. He said, then there are those who have a great God. He speaks and, and, and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them, and they fear him. And he went on to tell Dr. Barnhouse that he could see that he had a great God and that God would bless his ministry abundantly, and God did. God used Dr. Barnhouse in an amazing way because he was a big godder. 
is do we serve a big God or a little God? Do we depend upon him or do we depend upon ourselves? Pursue faith. Number number three, cleanse people, pursue love. You say, well, well, I, I'm, I'm just a naturally loving person. No, you're not. You're naturally selfish. Let me just tell you that. Even if you think you're a naturally loving person, no, you are selfish. I'm selfish. That's why Paul commands pursue love. <laughs> it's a command. That requires getting your focus off of yourself and onto others so that you can treat them as you would want to be treated yourself. It means giving your time to listen to someone who is hurting. It means befriending someone who is lonely. Sometimes it means having the courage to talk to a brother or sister who is in sin with, with the aim of restoring that brother and sister back to the Lord. It means being, being patient and kind and considerate and not easily provoked, 1 Corinthians 13. Pursuing love means investing constant effort to loving other people. And then finally, cleanse people, pursue peace with all who call on the, on the Lord from a pure heart. You see, peace usually doesn't just happen. You have to pursue it deliberately, and sometimes with a lot of effort. It is, deliber- it is, is debatable whether a comma should be inserted after peace there. You see, with a comma, the, the sentence means that you should join with other believers in the common pursuit of peace. Without the comma, the idea is that the peace that you should pursue should be with other believers here described as those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So pure is, is related to the verb cleanse in verse 21 and thus refers to a heart that has been cleansed from sin. And the implication of the command is that even though Christians can call upon the name of the Lord out of hearts that have been cleansed from sin, they still have conflicts and misunderstanding with each other. And thus they need to pursue peace with one another. So if you wonder why you have conflicts with people, it's because you need to pursue peace. The world's way of dealing with misunderstanding or conflicts is to nurse our hurts, to spread gossip, to stand up for our rights. And God's way is to go directly to the one who offended and seek to be reconciled. Jesus said that this is so important that even if you are worshiping, leave your worship and first be reconciled to your brother or your sister, Matthew five twenty three and 24. Recognizing that it is difficult, Paul says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Pursue peace. It's a great honor for an athlete to be put into the starting lineup of a big game, right? I mean, that... The coach thinks a lot of you if he puts you in that, in that starting position. But even greater than the honor of being used by the coach is to be used by God, to be in his starting lineup. You don't have to have great talents. 
you have to be a cleansed person who constantly flees sin and pursues godliness. Let's pray.